Welcome to another installment of Horrorversary. If you haven't listened to this podcast before, my name is Adrian Torres, and I'm the host on the journey that we take that is this show. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is Horrorversary? Well, Horrorversary, very simply put, is a podcast celebrating horror movies, celebrating anniversaries. Now, we don't go for any of the weird, let's do 42 years or let's do 25 years. No, we're talking about the big milestones, the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. Because however far back you go, there's going to be some horror film that comes out that's celebrating an anniversary. And maybe it's the biggest movie that's ever made, or maybe it's a complete pile of dog shit. But there's a good chance that somebody out there absolutely loves it. And we want to give them a chance to convince you that this movie is indeed as wonderful and should be put on a pedestal that we keep on doing. So if somebody like Synapse puts out, you know, a 70th anniversary edition of a movie, you know that you should definitely take a chance on it. Now, we're in the beginning of a new year and we're in the beginning of a new decade. And I won't stop mentioning that until, well, basically about a week from now, once we've passed June or sorry, January, because then it'll just be annoying. And I don't want to annoy you guys too much. Now, this is a weird period. Because we're in 2020, and it's strange thinking that 2000 is 20 years ago. 20 years! That's that's way too long. It's almost a point that when you look back on certain films, they're almost old enough to drink. And yes, I know that's a joke that hasn't been funny for a while, but I'm still going to say it, because I'm me. Now, the film that we're talking about this week is Pitch Black. And Pitch Black, in a very certain person's career, comes at kind of a weird point. And of course, we're talking about Vin Diesel. And that's because he comes off the success of Saving Private Ryan. He has this movie. And then a year later is when you end up getting Fast and the Furious. Now, Pitch Black itself is a movie that's being put out by Polygram. And it's the last movie that actually gets released as Polygram. Because Polygram gets bought up by Universal. So it's strange to think that he does this movie... That critics are kind of divided on, but people say that they think he's going to be a star, and then a year later, he ends up being in the movie by the company who bought the studio who made his last movie that ends up to basically go on and define his entire career. But Pitch Black is a little bit more interesting than that. I mean, if you dive in and you really watch it nowadays, it plays out differently than a whole bunch of sci-fi horror movies that we get right now. And I think that's interesting because... Okay, it, it's the first one of the year. I rambled a little bit. I, I got talking about Vin Diesel, and there's about 75 different, you know, impressions that you can make either of him or comments that he can make about him. So he's just that either captivating or bland, but maybe we'll get to the bottom of it. Most importantly, we've got a very, very exciting guest on tonight. If you heard just a couple months ago, we had... I've had people tell me that it was a great episode for a terrible movie, which I'm totally fine with. I, I'm okay with that. But back at just around Halloween, we had an episode on Sorority Row, and we had one half of the Horror Queers set, which if you haven't listened to the Horror Queers podcast, take time out of your day. If you have earphones at work, that's probably the safest way to listen to it. But we have their other co-host, who's also a writer at Bloody Disgusting, and we'll have him tell you about many of the other wonderful things that he does. Please welcome Joe Lipset. Hello. How's it going, Joe? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. Now, like I said to them just a second ago, you have many other coals in the fire, as they put it. I, I, <laughs> I mentioned Bloody Disgusting. I mentioned Horror Queers. But please, for people who might not be aware of the other things you do, definitely let them know. 
Okay. So, yeah, I made a joke on another podcast that I guested on recently that I just can't be pinned down. I'm a person who refuses to only write for one or three or like 10 different outlets. So, uh, yeah, so I do write for Bloody Disgusting. That's kind of my home base because Brad Miska was kind enough to give me my first big break. But uh, I'm I'm Canadian in case people can't tell. I, of course, am like myself, but other people tell me I have a Canadian accent. So I live here in Toronto and I have a really close group of friends. And one of them is Valeska Griffith. Blah, sorry, Valeska Griffith. She's going to be really mad at me that I messed that up. Uh, and she does a website called Anatomy of a Scream, which is a female and queer inclusive horror website. And that has a spinoff, which is a print publication called Grim Magazine that publishes three times a year. And it's one of the very few female fronted uh, editorialized pieces of print horror that's coming out. So there's Andrea Supasetti, who's actually also here in Toronto, that does Remorgue. There's Suspiria over in the UK. And then there's Valeska, who does Grimm. So I help out on that website. And then I've got my own crappy website on the side as well. That, that's why you write for other people, so that you can trail off at the end when it comes to the thing that you think people would want to check out first. <laughs> okay, fine, Adrian. So uh, I have my own website called Queer Horror Movies. And that's it's more or less a portfolio, like a repository of different articles that I've written or places that I just couldn't find a home for them. So I throw up a lot of television recaps that I do with uh, Terry Menard from Gaily Dreadful. So we've done coverage of Pose and we did Servant from Apple TV. And right now we're doing The Outsider on HBO. And then I do non-horror related writing on there as well. I, I and I, I will take this moment so we have an audio version of me being uh, apologetic because of the fact that, well, I tried to run into him because I didn't realize that he was in town for for Panic Fest in Kansas City, where I live. And I sent him a DM the other day being like, hey, I didn't I didn't see you. Are, are, are you around? And we were going to try to cross paths, but we're in all the same movies. And so now here I am not at Panic Fest where he is currently recording oh, no. this episode while his name is getting dropped. And I'm like, oh, I feel I feel terrible. I'm going to have to tell Joe to to, to be like, hey, <laughs> part of the reason you didn't see Adrian is because he recorded with me. So, Oh, sure. I'm your cover, am I? <laughs> for, for now. For now. But, but I think it also shows just kind of how for, for as big as the world is, how small. Um, it is when it comes to the film community sometimes. Oh, definitely. And I think the advent of social media has really helped in that regard. I've met so many people that I don't think I would ever have the opportunity to meet in real life. And I feel like I legitimately know them now, which is, I mean, it's funny. It's how I met both Valeska and Terry and Trace. I knew them all online before we ever met in person. I've never met Terry in person. I, and I still haven't. So <laughs> there we go. We're on that same page. But there more we importantly, we, we are talking, of course, about Pitch Black. Now, the first question that we like to ask everybody, for you people at home who might be coming over and saying, oh, Joe did this episode. I definitely want to listen to it, even though I don't know what the podcast is about. So this show, we like to say that it's a glorified Gus session. And that's why we have people like Joe on, people that we know are passionate, and that when we ask them a question, we're going to get a very long and detailed and wonderful answer to it so we like to ask the same five questions to every single guest and kind of see how the conversation flows from there because 
Sometimes people can ramble or sometimes they're not sure what to talk about. And we know that if we have this format, it's going to be the best. So the first question is probably the easiest question that I will ask you tonight. And that's, do you remember the first time you saw Pitch Black? I do indeed. Yeah. So I like to tell people that I blame my sister or I laud my sister for getting me into horror. So she and I were really we were really rigorous film watchers uh, in the 90s. So she raised me on Clyde Barker films. We watched direct-to-video nonsense. And it was really great. Like, she gave me my horror education, even though I don't think she really even knew she was doing it. We just watched whatever we could get our hands on. So by the end of the 90s, we were actually leaving the house and going to theaters. So we had gone to all of the session sorry, the second slasher cycle. So we had done the screams, the I know what you did last summer and all this kind of stuff. And this was the time when sci-fi horror was starting to come back a little bit. So, uh, you know, some of the budgets were still there and we caught eye of this little film that we didn't think anybody was paying attention to that was coming out. It looked visually distinct from some of the other things that we had seen it didn't have the same kind of studio polish and we said okay the this looks intriguing so let's go to see it so we actually went i think on opening weekend in the year 2000 and yeah we totally loved it and we were shocked that the film didn't do badly per se but at the same time it close to doubled its its uh its budget you know yeah, so and I, I, I feel like budget. that's, yeah, if you're making a movie that's, you know, around 25 million and you're making 53 million, it's not, it, you're not going to be at the top of the list at the end of the year, but you're at least making the studio you made it for somewhat happy. Yeah, it's notable. Like it's, it's going to get that asterisk that says, okay, there's something here, which obviously there is, because if not, we would not have two sequels to this movie. But, uh, yeah, I, I think at the time we were just really confused because it felt like we were the only people talking about this movie. It only grossed $11 million in its opening weekend. And I mean, nowadays for some horror films, that would be considered a great boon. But yeah. back in this time, you know, we were used to mega grosses because we thought that sci-fi films needed a lot of money to break even. So all of a sudden we were worried that people were sleeping on this great film. We couldn't figure out why people weren't flocking to it like we had. I feel like it's the beginning of the millennium, or not even so much the millennium, but of of a new decade. And that's because you have movies like this, and if you look back at the 90s, and just the other night I was watching Hardware on the big screen at uh, Panic Fest, and you see that movie, and you realize it's being made in 89, but it comes out in 90 and it doesn't really feel like anything else that's coming out at the time. Mm -hmm. You have a film like this that comes out in 2000, even though it was made in 99 and it's not really feeling like anything uh, of of that period. And so there's something in the water when you you're taking this turn into the new decade that you have people who are kind of going full force into something because they either because they want to make it original or they just think they have a good idea, but they don't realize that they're kind of turning the tide themselves. Because you even go back to like around 80 when you have the first um, Friday the 13th. And you have everybody who talks about the proto slashers, but that that's the one that pushes it into the forefront. And again, that's the one that's, you know, coming out at that start of a new decade and doesn't mean to make this turn. And so 
I think that's what's interesting about Pitch Black. Yeah, it's, you know, on one hand, you could look at it as a film that's having conversations with other horror slash science fiction in space that's coming out at the end of the 90s. So you could say, oh, it's kind of more like a throwback to those 90s type films or you know in your opening you mentioned fast and the furious you could look at it as oh it's actually a precursor like this is a star vehicle for someone who's on the rise and really it's not the film that's memorable it's the character it's the person conveying this anti-hero who really makes the mark because you know people talk about fast and the furious but there wouldn't be fast and the furious if not for pitch black agreed a hundred percent and the thing that's funny is by mentioning the sci-fi aspect of it, most people imagine that's in space. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what would kind of throw them off if they actually watch that. And we'll get into it in a second, but we we have to ask the second question because at the end of it, we, we kind of have to pause for the audience for a second. And now I have to apologize personally for you because we ask this question of everyone but it's kind of the antithesis of what you do on a weekly basis. <laughs> so the second question that we ask literally everyone, it's not like I came up with this just to torture Joe, but for the uninitiated out there who have never seen Pitch Black before, in as few words as possible, describe the, po- the plot to Pitch Black. Okay. I was anticipating this. So... We open on a ship in space, and the crew and passengers are in slumber. They're in hypersleep, or whatever you want to call it. And the ship gets hit by pieces from a comet, or so we are told later. And the ship ends up crashing onto a nearby planet. It's thrown off course, crashes onto this planet that nobody seems to know anything about. Most of the people are killed, so we have a ragtag band of survivors. And they discover that they are on a planet with three different suns. So they will have eternal sunshine. They need to find a way either off the planet or a way to survive until they can find that way. So they need water, they need food, they need shelter, and everything seems to be okay were it not for the fact that they have a very dangerous murderous convict with them, who is the Vin Diesel character, Riddick. And they've got that mostly under control, and then something starts to click that they are finding bones. One person goes missing suddenly, and they're not sure if it's the convict, they're not sure if it's something else. And then they discover that they are, they've unfortunately crash landed on this planet at the worst possible time. Every 23 years, there is an eclipse. And when that eclipse happens, the real danger emerges from beneath the planet's surface. And that is monsters who are going to kill everybody. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That, that was perfect. Now, the reason we have people do that is if you have not listened or if you have not either listened to the show before or seen the movie itself, this is where we take a moment for you to pause. Because in order to look back at some of these films, the only way you can truly do that is by diving deep, deep, deep in, which, of course, means getting into spoiler territory. So if Joe sold you on it and you haven't seen the movie, pause right here. We will give you a second. Or... If you absolutely love listening to Joe and I, then, you know, be, be those people who want to live in the spoiler world. That's that's fine. We won't judge, but we're going to pause here for just a second so then you can come back. Okay, screw it. Now we're getting into the movie. If you did not pause, we gave you a second, like literally, I think one second. And I you had your you. chance. 
So, you know, all bets are off here. Now, we're, we're talking about space. We're talking about sci-fi horror. And what struck me when I was watching this movie this time is how much is set open on the planet and how it takes its time setting up. Oh do, God, do you think yes. that that has kind of a different feel from, you know, the event horizons we get or... I, I shudder to even mention the name, but Supernova that also comes out in 2000. <laughs> Very different movie. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think one of the things that sets Pitch Black apart from some of these other films is not just the fact that it takes place primarily on a planet as opposed to a ship. Like there's if people haven't seen this before and you didn't take the moment to go and watch it virtually none of this movie takes place on a ship. They didn't even want to show the ship. They wanted to open on her waking out of cryosleep and the ship crashing and not even give you a shot of the ship in space just kind of floating around. So it's like it's minuscule. But also this is a film that takes its time. Like Supernova, it's campy as fuck. It's a bit of a garbage disaster. I mean, it's an Alan Smithy film, so let's not forget that. But... Uh, Really, the the thing that distinguishes Pitch Black is that it's really content to just let you sit with these characters and get to know them before it does its solar eclipse. And really, that's when the film becomes an action film and we've got big set pieces. And, you know, we'll discuss those in greater detail later. But really, so much of Pitch I keep wanting to say Pitch Perfect. So much of Pitch Black... <laughs> is just these characters trying to find a way to survive and dealing with all of their bullshit baggage. Because yeah. this is also a film that is populated almost entirely by liars and cheats. And and David Keith. Or no, Keith David. Keith David. And Keith David, yes. There we go. It was glorious. Yeah, he's I, the I only one who doesn't have a secret. <laughs> yeah, that, he's, the, he's one of the few actors out there where if you trip up and mess up on their name order, you actually are literally mentioning another person. It's and unfortunately true. for Keith David, it's another actor. So it's like the worst thing in the world. So that, I think there's probably been like 15 times in my life where I've been talking about David Keith and I've mentioned Keith David or I've been talking about Keith David and mentioned David Keith. Well, and it's so funny, too, right? Because normally you just be like, oh, if I can't remember his name exactly, I'll just say it's the really charismatic actor with the really unique voice. But in this movie, that could also be Vin Diesel. Yes. And <laughs> so to, to start this conversation, I think it, it's really important to ask this third question um, be, because it's not something that you think of necessarily off the top of your head. But what is it about this movie that you think's helped it stay relevant for the past 20 years? Well, that's actually an interesting question, because when we talked about doing this, I was really eager to go back and watch this movie. I've seen it so, so many times, but I haven't seen it really recently. So I was interested to see if it held up, if, you know, the way that I remembered it was the way it actually plays out. But I'll confess, I don't know that this is a big deal to a lot of other people. Like, huh. the people who like Pitch Black love Pitch Black, and I am yeah. one of those people. But I don't know that this is a film that continues to resonate in the cultural consciousness. Like, I don't think people think about Pitch Black. And that makes me really sad. See, that's that's interesting, because you, you see all the other movies that Vin Diesel's done, and maybe it's to the point where... 
for as interesting, unique, and different uh, of a, a person that he is, he's one of those actors who I don't think a year goes by that he doesn't have something coming out at this point in his career. Mm-hmm. And so usually when you have certain actors who have a lull, who have like, you know, two, three years off, that people go, you know what, I, I haven't had this person in a movie in a while. I want to go back and see their earlier stuff because th- there's not something coming out right now. Whereas Vin Diesel constantly has, for better or worse, a project that's in the work. So you don't really have that lull because in the you know, six months to a year between when his next movie comes out, people who missed that movie in the theater are watching it on VOD. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of bowls over on each other. Yeah, it's him and Nicolas Cage, right? <laughs> Um, I think one of the challenges with Vin Diesel, and I, I do want to talk about the other people in this movie, not just him, but since you we're on the topic, kind of have to, so. <laughs> it, we have to talk about the Vin Diesel in the room, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it would be like talking about uh triple X three, but only wanting to talk about Tony Collette. I can do that. I'm oh, I can with do it. that. But, I will do that. <laughs> but pe- people would be upset if you're not talking about Vin Diesel since he is ostensibly the lead. Uh, okay, put a pin in that. We will come back to that claim. <laughs> I will fight you on that. But yeah, I, the I thing... said it on purpose. I said it on purpose. <laughs> the thing with Vin Diesel is that this is a film that came out before he was Vin Diesel, before he became branded as Vin Diesel, right? So what we know him now is the guy who's built like a brick shit house he emotes in one word answers you know he throws around white guys like they're you know five pound weights at the gym he's very intimidating he's very masculine he's uh he's not well regarded as an actor most of the time like he is an action star and he is charismatic but he doesn't have gravitas per se Whereas here, you can actually see him working within like an actor studio kind of model. Not to say that he's thespian at all, but that he is actually giving a strong performance in this film. Like Riddick is a man of few words, but when he does speak, he makes them count. And you can't say the same when you get into the later Fast and the Furious films or when you get into your triple X's or when you yeah. get into whatever that movie he's making right now, Bloodshot is like, you know, these are films where you're going because it is Vin Diesel and you know yeah. what kind of action you're going to get with Pitch Black. He I mean, he wasn't that guy. So people weren't going to see this movie because of him. But what they got was the person he would become matched with a genuine performance that i think to this day like you watch pitch black he is so fucking charismatic he's so sexy he's so enigmatic and you think you know what he could fuck you or he could kill you and it could go either way and you might be happy with whichever way it does well he's it's a movie that's coming out again as we mentioned several times at the start of a new decade but he his character and the way that he's built is more emblematic of like the eighties. Yes. Yes. Because he's, he, he would fit into that mold and and maybe he would be, maybe the projects he would have been given would be a little bit different because this is the type of character. I'm not, I'm not saying they would do it the same, but it's a type of 
of character that would have gone to like a Bruce Willis or a Stallone mm-hmm. at that time because he he's a bad guy who's also kind of good and he's a guy who can you know talk really tough to this guy but he's got a softer side because he wants to help out the kid but then he's got one-liners all the time but his one-liners are actually pretty good so it, it feels more you know a, a throwback to that time and i think that works with you already have the otherworldliness of having the the sci-fi and the horror so having this guy who's not really somebody who belongs there you could have him be weird and from another time Exactly. Yeah. And you've got an actor who can convey the physicality, but still give you the performance. And unfortunately, I think what we've seen is that he's turned more into like a later day Arnold or mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately also Stallone. But like he he's at a very different stage in his career at this point. And what he would become is more equivalent to like those late 80s slash early 90s action figures where it's just all spectacle and very little performance here it's like he's hitting that sweet spot well and i think it comes down to something that you you started to talk about a minute ago and that's the people that he's surrounded by you look at those later movies whether it's well we even mentioned somebody like seagal but those people when they they start out and they have the movies that really connect they have good side characters they have good mm-hmm. side actors to bounce off of and when it just becomes them being an unstoppable killing machine with no one else to play off of that. Then it loses that. And so you look at like the later um, fast and furious movies. And if people want to crucify me, that's fine. I still enjoy (laughs) them and find them fun, but you're surrounding him. Vin Diesel, the person with yes, people with people who are, they want their moments and he wants his moments, but he wants them to still be like, oh, you got to kowtow to me. I'm sorry. Let, let me try to do better. You got to kowtow to me. Not bad. Not bad. I tried. I tried. I'll, I'll just, allow it's, it. It's all about the grumble. All about the grumble. But in, <laughs> in this, he has people who are who are actors. And they might not be the most known at the time, but they're there saying, it's my job to act against you. So we're actually going to work through these scenes. And of course, the two people that we have to hit upon is definitely Cole Hauser and Rada Mitchell. Yes. Yeah. And I love that this is truly an international film. Well, maybe more of a co-production between the U.S. and Australia. So what we get is we get Cole Hauser, who is our American, you know, counterpart and then we've got rada mitchell who is the less known entity sort of repping for the australians as well as most of the secondary cast i completely agree and i was trying to look up his name because you were mentioning um australia and i thought one of the things that we had to and then we'll jump back to the to the actors for a second is how strikingly shot this movie is Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like I didn't I didn't remember that. I'm watching it and I'm just getting pulled in. I'm like, holy crap! This is shot really, really well with with just how the the color changes and when like they're down in the cave and it's actually shot normal. But then you go back up and they have to compete with how it would look with the three suns. Mm-hmm. And then they've got lights that are making it green at certain times. You've got the almost color out of space moments with Riddick's eyes, like. I didn't re- remember it being shot that well. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a really interesting process. So they they shot this in Australia in a place called Cooperpedia. It's the same place that they shot uh, several of the early Mad Max movies. So I think the Road Warrior for sure. Okay. And so it has a really distinctive visual look to it, but it doesn't look like this, right? Like this is accentuated by the FX team who, I mean, I, I was listening to the audio commentary <laughs> while okay. uh, prepping for this and they were talking about how they shot it in Australia. It's based like it's completely a desert environment and the people who live in this town, like it's an old mining town. And you have to live underground because it's so hot there during the day. Uh, But of course, when they were shooting this production, they were actually shooting during the winter to try to not kill their actors. So it was actually very cold. So when you see them sweating, that's actually them misting the actors. It's not authentic (laughs) sweat, (laughs) which I love because when you think Australia, you just automatically think hot. But um, but yeah, so they shot it in Australia and then... uh, David Tui came back to Los Angeles to do his post-production and then he would send his work over to the FX team who were working in London. Oh, so it, it was like a really interesting way of working. I don't know enough about production to know if that's un, like highly unorthodox or not. But uh, one of the things that they did to get the distinctive visual look of this was they they had to shoot it in a bunch of different ways. So they had a process called skip bleaching where okay. they would they would actually uh, dip the film into this. And instead of washing the bleach off, they would try to keep some of that on so that it would have that kind of desaturated look and then they would augment it with fx depending on which direction the characters were facing and which sun was hitting them and it's so fucking technical and then you look at the budget and you see it's 23 million dollars and i think that's what's really distinct about it i mean riddick is the the thing that everybody wants to talk about with the movie but like the way it shot that's what i was taken back by that's what i was eating in for a long period of time because you don't when it comes to movies like this, you don't really ha- expect that much thought to be put into something that doesn't have the biggest budget in the world. Mm-hmm. That wants to to focus in the second half, or most people think is just going to be about the monsters. So the time and care that they they put into that is just really impressive. And I, I did look it up. The guy who did shoot um, Pitch Black, whose name is David Egby, he actually was the director of cinematography for Mad Max. There we go. Yeah. So I that, mean, get someone was... who knows that terrain, who knows how to work with it, right? I, I mean, he also did Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, so who, your, your career goes weird places. <laughs> now, so true. To, to get back to the actors, uh, Cole Hauser and Rada Mitchell, I, I think we don't really discuss them enough no. when it comes to in terms of this movie because they're, Vin Diesel's getting to play the action part, but, but they have a big part of the story and what I was noticing this time and we'll say that it's because I haven't watched the movie and in seven years so you hear you revisit plenty of other movies in that time Mm -hmm. and I was struck by when when Rada Mitchell comes and sees Riddick for the first time when he's been uh, recaptured uh, by Johns that it's while it's slightly different it's clearly 100% referencing Silence of the Lambs uh, yes. Okay. Because yeah. they're, they're talking from the distance and he's asking or she's asking him to open her or his eyes and he's trying to draw her in closely so that he mm-hmm. can try to lunge and scare her. 
and they kind of had that adversarial thing. And the interesting thing about the movie while you're watching it is it's kind of doing an inverse of Silence of the, of the Lambs. And while that movie follows Clarice but has like small little bits with Hannibal Lecter, this movie starts to diminish the Clarice part and give more of the time to Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, gosh, that's really interesting. I had never thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. And I will say knowing, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the end, I guess, in a bit. But <laughs> yes. I, one of the things that has frustrated me about the legacy of Pitch Black is how much people prioritize Vin Diesel. And don't yeah. get me wrong, I do think he's legitimately great in this film. He is truly amazing. But his character doesn't work without the other two, and particularly Rada Mitchell, who I think has the most fascinating arc in this film and to me she's like it'd be really easy to write her off like the character of fry as you know oh she's the woman like the straight woman who uh is there just to keep riddick you know kind of on track right like she is the emotional grounding center for him so that he doesn't just run off and jump in the plane and go off world but i think that really diminishes the character and also what Rana Mitchell is bringing to this role, which is obviously a certain amount of vulnerability, obviously a certain amount of sex appeal. But like this film opens with her more or less deciding that she's going to kill every single person to save herself. Yep. And by the end of the film, she refuses to walk away and not let and and not just leave with Riddick, right? Like she has yeah. to go back for these other two people who she was ready to kill two days ago. And I realize that that's really facile and that's, you know, that's a hero's journey. It's very Joseph Campbell. But the way that Mitchell plays it is so fascinating and compelling yeah. to me. And there's a vulnerability there that you're not expecting. You see it the first time when she's trapped in the cave trying to trying to scream for her life after being mm-hmm. like, Oh, I got to get out of there. And she can only get so, so far up that she knows that she, she has to allow herself to ask for help. Yes. And then when uh, she's doubled over crying in the rain towards the end of the movie, like those mm-hmm. are moments you normally get from those characters. No. And particularly when, I mean, it'd be very easy to say that this film is taking little chunks like little pieces of alien because of course that's what we have to say every time there's a female lead and it involves space of any kind and literally aliens and literally aliens yeah but uh i mean i think what she's giving us is this really fully fleshed out character so she's not just vulnerable she's not just strong she's not just sexy she's all of those things and it takes a really natural organic path but like you're right the scenes that stand out to me are the scenes where you know her her duplicity is revealed by Johns when he says she was ready to kill all of you and they're all like oh, what and she just starts crying and you're thinking when was the last time you actually saw a moment take a breath and just allow a character to have an emotional breakdown about a moral quandary that almost killed all the other characters in the film. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is a movie that's called pitch black and it doesn't start to get dark until 59 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. So, because I mean, 
because it, it's taking those moments. It's taking those times because they know that if you establish these characters and you establish stakes, when it comes time for people dying, even if it's the annoying guy who's pattering around whose <laughs> name is Paris. God, you, that you, antiquities you, dealer. <laughs> but, but I mean, you, you feel a little bit more like you're so annoyed with him that by the time he dies and he has an interesting death, you're like, that's a really cool visual. And had that just happened at the beginning when somebody just slipped out, I wouldn't care as much, but, Oh, he's, he's getting totally dead and I'm fine with it. But what a nice image too, at the same time. Yeah. And it's hilarious when you when you hear about how test audiences reacted to this film. They 100% wanted the the lights to go out earlier. They wanted Riddick to get his big badass fuck you kind of moments earlier in this film. But guess what, people? The reason that this film works is because it's a delayed gratification. It doesn't work that way if we don't get all of these other character beats. But and I mean, that's test audiences, unfortunately. Oh, God, is, they're the worst. <laughs> they're, they're the worst. I mean, we're not talking about this individual, but the moment that always stays in my mind is the great um, documentary, The Hamster Dance and other tales uh, from 12 Monkeys. And they've got um, they, they've got a part in there when they're talking to Terry Gilliam while he's going through the process and he's, you know, come from one of the test screenings and he's explaining, you know, that, you know, everybody seemed to really excite or really excited in the audience. And then he got to see, like, the answers and questions that, that people put yeah. on their <laughs> on, like, their test screening form. And it just showed that, like, the people who are watching the movie weren't the type of crowd who would actually ever see the movie or understand anything that was going in uh, on in it. And like the only reason they were there was because they saw Bruce Willis. Right. And it, it's just one of those stories in general that test audiences aren't the people that you're actually selling the movie to. So why are you asking their opinion? Yeah. Which is a hundred percent. It's, to a certain extent, it's disappointing, but it's also a little bit understandable. And when you look at the way that this movie was marketed, they 100% sold it on the monsters and the that, that escaped poster, criminal. That poster yeah. of, of his face? I say, say, say what you will about Vin Diesel now, but like you see young Vin Diesel, everybody was going to go for him. So the version of the poster that you put out is of your lead character that you want to be a sex symbol with a blurry, fuzzy, pixelated face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm not a marketing person, and even <laughs> I know that that's not really the best move. But to talk about the other side of the coin, of course, is Cole Hauser. And he's a very interesting character that, again, they add a little bit of extra depth to him that maybe isn't needed. But when you have somebody like Cole Hauser, who's probably one of the three best actors to play a, a, a true douche and dick out there mm-hmm. that, that the audience will just go in on. Like I, I would pay to see a movie that was just called assholes. If it was starring him and Neil McDonough <laughs> Ooh, as brothers or as like brothers. rivals <laughs> as they, they could be brothers who were rivals and so true. like just bounty hunters or find a way to magically no one would see it, but I would see it. See, so uh, find a way to remake Midnight Run with the two of them. Oh, interesting! I like it. If it, if this was ten years ago, so. right? <laughs> <laughs> no one will pay for it now. I mean, to be honest, we're saying Cole Hauser. Like people even know who he is, but I think at this stage, it's like, do people know who he is anymore? Is, is that what he asks himself when he wakes up in the morning? 
I don't know. Probably. Maybe what he asked his agent. Uh. Uh, sad. But no, you're you are right. I mean, it it's so easy to dislike the character of John's in this film. Yeah. And yet I also kind of respect him. Like he's a drug abusing correctional facility. <laughs> but like he also has such a personal stake in this. Like, and, and that's the reason why his interactions with Riddick work is because yeah. this isn't just a job for him. It is totally fucking personal. That's why he shows Fry the scar in his back because it's like, yeah, I'm going to get this motherfucker because he tried to kill me and almost succeeded. And now it's I personal. And he's almost sympathetic in that moment, too, because it, it happens about five to seven minutes after Riddick gives the whole speech to her about the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. So when unprompted, Johns mentions the sweet spot and that he survived. And then five seconds later, she's just like, oh, you're just a junkie. And he's like, listen, you might have your caffeine in the morning. I have my morphine. And mm -hmm. he just explained to you how he almost died and he has this scar that's probably causing him so much pain because of where the nerve endings and where his spine was that it's like, yeah. you know what? I can kind of understand this guy being like, you know what? I need to take this morphine just so I'm not in terrible pain. And also fuck that dude. Well, and also I'm the one protecting your ass from this guy because yeah. really in, until a certain point, the only physical the only other physical character in this film, apart from Riddick, the only other person who could hypothetically protect this group, which is comprised of children, religious <laughs> figures, and people who probably weigh under 100 pounds. Hi, Rada Mitchell. You're great, but you're not the biggest physical threat. So, like, you you need Johns on your yeah. side, except that Johns is the biggest fucking asshole yes. in the room. <laughs> yeah. On the planet. On the, on the whole planet. <laughs> Well, I, okay, here, here's a hypothetical, and then we'll jump on to the third question that we have. But, but since we're talking about it now, um, do you think if Johns had gotten the upper hand in that battle and was able to take Riddick out, you know, when they've got the shotgun fight and everything, mm -hmm. if he was the one to, to shoot Riddick in the arm, the aliens come and tear him up, do you think Johns is going to help everybody else or he's just going to get off that planet? Absolutely. He would not help them. He would immediately abandon all of them unless he thought that he needed people to distract the monsters down the road. So in that case, I do actually feel confident that he would have taken Jack, the girl, <laughs> yeah. because I think he would have been like, she's light. So if need be, I could carry her. I could also toss her if I needed to as I get closer to that ship. Which, in the end, is the, the true definition of the two characters there. Now, mm -hmm. we've covered very many different things, but we want to we wanna see what you have to say here. But uh, the third question is, is, is there a signature scene or moment that stays with you when you think about Pitch Black? So I ended up coming up with two, and I feel like they're... I went with the obvious ones because for me, this film is more denoted by the little character beats, but I don't think that they stand out to most people. So I went with the most people option. And the first is the opening crash. So even though they're not spending a lot of time on the spaceship, the the way that Tui films 
this crash sequence. Uh, and it's a, it's a great example of making something when you just don't have the budget to do what you'd maybe actually like. So they are going into the planetary atmosphere. The ship is burning up and you just see Fry in this pilot seat and she is trying to work these different levers to get something up to build resistance so that this spaceship doesn't explode on entry. And they really wanted to do a scene of the ship crashing into the planet and they did not have the budget and they could not figure out a way to do it. So he just films Fry with, you know, the, the wind in her face, the glass from the shattered windshield spraying her. And he just intercuts it with close-ups of her eye and close-ups of Cooper PD's landscape. And the way that that's shot and edited 100% makes you think that you are right there with her in that pilot seat and you are going to die. <laughs> yes. And, and it's it, amazing. It, uh, it, it works so well. Now, What's interesting about that is because you talked about the opening scene and I noticed it this time and it's something that I wanted to to ask you about because I think it's a conversation we're going to start seeing happen the rest of this year since 20 is that big number in films when movies are hitting 20th anniversary everybody Mm -hmm. talks about and because the 2000s is when we start to begin to rely heavily on special effects this is a movie that that I felt we need to discuss it with is when you've seen a movie a couple times and you enjoy it or you see a movie that you know is 20 years in the past, if the special effects don't hold up to today's standards, mm-hmm. are you willing to forgive it or does it kind of break that immersive experience, do you think? Oh, that is a $64,000 question, isn't it? I, I know it's a loaded question, but I, I think... And it's not just, hey, we were talking about this early, but but I do think it's a conversation uh, and it's a question that's going to get asked a lot now because you have everybody who's going to be looking at those movies from from 2000. And, and mm-hmm. next year when you get into to 2001 and everybody's talking about um, what's it called? Uh, the Fellowship of the Rings and Harry oh, Potter right. and, and everything yep. like that, which, of course, are five hundred thousand times the budget but you have mm-hmm. lots of lots of movies that are coming out in this period that you know have 20 30 40 50 dollar budgets because they were huge at the time yeah well and... don't forget this is only a couple months after star wars episode one came out Wait, which what was that like 150 180 i want to say gosh yes just, just for it so you're, you're looking at a film that's about five times as much so you know, I mean, but i yeah. mean that's what that's where the dividing thing is but for a movie like this you've you've watched it several times you hadn't oh, watched yeah. it in, in a while how did those how forgivable were you in those moments um so so my my general rule of thumb is are they using fx when needed or are they leaning on it as a kind of crutch so mm-hmm. when it starts to become eye candy or because you thought you know what we don't need to do this practical because we can just throw some shit onto a computer and people will buy it that's when i don't forgive you for your shoddy special effects so yeah. in the case of this film i do i look at the budget and i think 23 million dollars it's not a lot of money now it's not a lot of money back then and I think for the most part, the FX in this film are 
they're adequate to they hold up reasonably well. You know, the creature effects when we get into the second half of the film, a lot of them actually look okay to me. There's a couple yeah. of dicey interactions. Um, when but they I were think... inside the like the hangar room, I was surprised by how when they're up on the crates and everything, I'm like, this looks really good. Like th- there was one in there when it's charging at the end, doesn't look the greatest, but the rest when they're when they're crawling across, I'm like it's one thing to just have it there, but to have it be in motion and have it look that good. I, I was mm-hmm. surprised how well that one held up. Yeah. And even like the introductory moments when Fry is down in the caves and you see them kind of camouflaged on the wall and they look a little bit more like octopi. I actually thought that still holds up fairly well yeah. as well. So, yeah, it's it's like a couple of choice interactions where you're like, "Mm, no, this is pretty obviously fake. But there are quite a few times where you think, you know what, this looks a lot better than I would have expected for a film that's 20 years old. And we'll pause here for just a second for poor Claudia Black. (laughs) I I, I love her. I was I was a big uh, Farscape fan. And so when I saw that scene, I was like, oh, out of all the deaths in the movie, you're. You're the one who gets the terrible CGI treatment. It's true. And and it's kind of disappointing because it's one of the better deaths in the film. Like in terms of grandiose big time set pieces, getting your body ripped in half and carried away into the daylight is uh, it's it's kind of up there. <clears throat> what I forgot about is uh, uh, how terribly that first kid gets it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the poor religious kids, which P.S., I am always on the record as being someone who loves an American movie, especially that's willing to murder children. So the fact that this movie kills all three of its uh, preteen religious figures is kind of astounding to me. If if you live half a galaxy away, maybe find uh, a a closer place to take your pilgrimage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's that, that's that's all I got to say to that. But no. But John's death, I like it held up really well. I know it's CGI, but it was pretty seamless with the chomp and then the the blood splurt that you had. I that one held up and that one got me. That I was like actually excited. I'm like, oh, that looks good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had actually forgotten about the head chomp, so I remembered yes. him getting impaled. And then, yeah, when you see it, I think part of this is that that is a really well edited sequence. Like they know just when to cut because you see enough to know exactly what's happening, but you don't linger on it long enough to be like, fake. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, okay, so we're getting in to the thick of it. We're getting towards the end. So the, the questions, if they're difficult, I'm. I don't technically apologize because you've made it this far. Okay. Um, but this one is slightly difficult. Um, can you think of a contemporary film that's reminiscent of Pitch Black? And what elements does Pitch Black do better? And are there any that the contemporary film might do, if you can think of one? Okay. So this is actually an easier question than you might expect, but oh. only because of a recent film that literally just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh- Oh, okay. I know where you're going. I'm cheating big time with this. Yeah, because the spiritual cousin to space horror is underwater horror. So obviously I'm going to have to go with our recently delayed, honestly, quite decent horror underwater film, Underwater. All right. Now now you got to do the second part. If you're going to jump in and say that it was easier, 
Let, let's see how you do on the second part there. Okay. Um, so to be honest, I, so I'm on the record as being mildly frustrated with some of the FX work in underwater. And I know that people have gone to bat for it and said, you know, oh, the underwater scenes, they need to be murky because they're reflecting the fact that there's silt in the water. And we've seen it a bunch in aquatic horror. Uh, you know, we saw it in 47 meters down and it's equal as well. But to me, that's the, oh, you know what? That's a lazy explanation. Like, well, can I, can I, can I... First of all, I'm on your side. Okay. But I would like to combat those people. Okay. Because when I saw this movie and was sitting in it, uh, there were sequences that I respected more without knowing certain knowledge uh, before walking out of it. Because when I was watching it and I'm like, oh, okay, they, they're they're kind of doing like the found footage under underwater type thing because they don't have a big budget. So they have to have the dirt coming by and... Yeah. The CG is not going to look the greatest because they're, they're probably working on like a small budget. This is probably a movie that costs like 15, you know, yep. million dollars at, at most. And so they're having to cut away. <laughs> and then you check that budget and you see that it's 80 million dollars. Yeah. And I get it. Like, I mean, I'm not going to spoil things, but there's obviously no. a big reveal in the third act. And you can tell that they probably spent a lot of money on that. And the sets yes. in Underwater look gorgeous. Like, they're they're massive and big, and they, they look great. Like, even the costume design of their Underwater suits. Mmm. Chef's kiss. Those but, are so good. So good. But, like, I, I really found the mid-tier creature design ineffectual and yeah you can tell that they're trying to cover it up and then the whole sequence where someone gets pulled away into the sky and our main character goes with them that whole sequence is honestly filmed it's it's not even like it's evoking found footage horror it's it's shot ineptly i can't even figure out what's going on half the time in that sequence and it's bad well, and then i come back to this 2000 film and i yeah. think you know what Every action sequence in this film, I know exactly where all of my characters are. I know, like, I can tell. And yet, I compare it to then a film that comes out, well, technically 17 years later, filmed, <laughs> 19 years released. But uh, it's there's something to be said for skilled direction. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it also comes from from people who have that background working in, like, the visual effects world. And mm -hmm. you, you get that because when I was watching it, like the movies that were coming to mind were um, I, I, some of them are bad comparisons, but it is what it is. But I was thinking of like, um, oh, God, a skyline. Oh, yeah. Um, OK. Uh, Pandorum. Yep. And Eden's Log. I haven't seen that one. I, I, I think it's either French or French Canadian, but it, it's that's one that's kind of along the lines of, of pandemic and parts of uh, underwater where you've got something that's supposed to be future, but it's breaking down. Right. Um, and somebody's having to like crawl and get to different points of it. But the movie's made by somebody who used to be a visual effects artist. So that's how they're thinking. So like the production design, the sets, everything looks really, really good, but right. the story is kind of wonky throughout. Yeah. Yeah. Which is to be honest, I think what has happened in the interceding two decades, you know, 
you you can't make a film like Pitch Black anymore because no studio is going to give you the leash to let your characters just exist before this happens. Like, as much as I respect and admire a lot of the things in Underwater, that film literally opens with a giant explosion. Yes. Because it's like, you know what, we're going to we're going to meet these characters as they're escaping from this, but also we need to open with a bang because, well, okay. To be fair in pitch black, that also happens. We've got our ship exploding, but, uh, it just, it feels like the attention span is gone for newer films. But you could tell me more about, um, the, the characters in pitch black. You can tell me more about their mindset. You can tell me more about, about where their moral compass possibly is than, than any of those, those characters, you know, Mm -hmm. Vincent Cassell's in charge of, of a ship. Uh, Kristen Stewart is opening a whole bunch of doors and trying to make sure that she doesn't go completely insane. (laughs) A guy is taking care of his girlfriend. And for some reason, TJ Miller's there to crack jokes and carry a bunny rabbit. Oh God, I can't, I can't, but But it's, it's funny, right? Because, you could you could go back to pitch black and say okay we've got the dirty cop we've got the you know morally ambiguous captain we've got the escaped convict we've got the religious guy we've got the artsy fartsy antique dealer but, but boy who's actually a girl for, you yeah have explanations for every single one of them uh, the the guy who you think is a dirty cop but is kind of a bounty hunter Here's the reason why he is the way mm-hmm. he is. Uh, the Muslim guy, the whole reason why he's here is because he's going to New Mecca. Even though it's just one line, you know about it. You know what his stance is. And so, like, you you know those pieces. You even know a whole bunch more about Riddick oh, yeah. than, than, like, any character in there. And he barely has many lines in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're all types. And yet they've been given enough direction and character development and the movie gives them enough scenes and even interactions like there's a scene where um oh shoot what's her name the chick from uh this is what always happens to me when i podcast for too long i start to lose my my thought line uh shaza so claudia black she she literally has a scene where she blames Riddick for the death of her husband, Zeke, who is like our first big kill in the film. Yep. And then she gets a scene later on where she apologizes, apologizes. to Riddick. And she, gi- and she gives him the uh, the respirator to make sure that he doesn't die. Yeah. Yeah. Like what other movie is going to take those that time? It, they would just never interact again in yeah. in any other movie. And this, this, by the way, this isn't a, a shitting on Underwater Fest. There, yeah. There's plenty of things <laughs> that I do that I do like about it. That whole third act is absolutely fantastic. And like I said, that mm-hmm. the set design and production design is just, it, it's literally chef's kiss. It's, yes. It's, it's perfect great. for that type of movie. You know, if if people were decent, even though there's going to be plenty of other movies, I would like to see movies like Underwater get attention when it comes to you know, technical awards and stuff. Oh, when gosh, we think about yeah. production design, because it's a January movie. Nobody's going to think about it next year. And yet I guarantee you, there'll be plenty of period piece movies that I'm like, yeah, that's great. It's, it's inside of a 16th century, you know, really nice castle. Mm-hmm. I've seen that a whole bunch of times. This was really, really well done with just great. So don't, don't think that we're, that we're crapping on it just because we're not giving it a hundred percent. Yeah. But that, that, is a film where the characters are not the reason to watch it, right? No. Whereas you could say, oh, well, I went into Pitch Black because 
I'm a retroactive fan of Vin Diesel or I like space movies, I like monster movies, what you're actually going to get is a lot of character work. And then you're going to get some monsters. Now, before we ask the final question, I did want to give you a moment and we did kind of hit upon it for a second when I mentioned ostensible lead. And we've been talking about Rada Mitchell. So did you want to bring up the thing that the kind of contentious point that it felt was brewing there for a moment? Uh, hmm, give, give me a, a little more of a tease. Oh, no, we, we were talking about the character of, of Riddick and how there's plenty of, of time where it feels like Rada oh, Mitchell's yes. kind, okay. kind of the, the, the lead of the film or co-lead. Yes. OK, so at one point, Riddick was meant to die in an early draft. And then when I think probably when they start when they started to see what Vin Diesel was bringing to the role in the tests and that kind of stuff, they changed the ending and they made it so that Fry dies instead so that they could sequelize the character of Riddick. And of course, that's exactly what happens. We get the Chronicles of Riddick in 2004 and then we get Riddick in 2013 and they're still teasing a fourth film to this day as of july of last year vin diesel is still chatting up how he wants the character to come back they've got a script and so on to be honest i'm okay with the way that this film ends because i like the subversion you think because fry has had her arc and she has become this better person and she's done the right thing that she and riddick are going to get off this rock yeah and then she doesn't and you know what i like the nihilism of that And I like that you don't even get to see her death. She's literally just flown away into the rainy night. And you're just like, fuck. Wow. The the only thing about that moment that I wasn't the hugest fan of is them having Vin Diesel's line in there. Yeah. Because for everything he's done up to that point, even if he's not the hugest fan of her, he having him then then say, you know, not 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 him, Mm -hmm. not, not not for him. It's like. Two seconds ago, there was nothing. There was nothing there that would have indicated that you would have had that type of thing. So it just felt like it was trying to to hit it home that the animosity between them. Plus, it's eighty yards. So. Oh yeah. Well, this you is know. and this is the thing, right? Like that is the moment where you say, "Oh, this film doesn't want me to even think of him as an anti-hero. He's a full-blown <laughs> hero now. Let's give him a motherfucking franchise." Which is what they do and it's fine. You know what? The character is great. He's great and at the other movies, well, hmm. Chronicles of Riddick that. is bad. Riddick is yeah. good. I, I do like Riddick. I will go to bat for for Riddick because it I think Well, they... because they partner him with another strong female lead in Katie Sackoff yeah. and they bring him back to the same kind of environment and it's great. Chronicles of Riddick is like a bloated masturbatory jerk off and it's terrible. Yes. It's also great for a lot of other campy reasons, but <laughs> um but it, I guess it's, the... it's just because everybody loves uh, Carl Urban and, and, and giant suits of armor. Oh, sure. And Calm Fjord just pontificating the whole time. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but I think the other thing, the thing that I don't like about that Riddick line is that it really just it turns the movie from a them to a him. Yes. So it you don't even get to process the fact that this woman you thought who was going to live is now dead. It, it just shifts immediately to be like, okay, it's the Riddick show. Like, hey, don't we love Riddick? Let's make her death about him. And I don't like the loss of female agency because even though you are right, a lot of the film 
is about the shift in focus. Like it starts with Fry and then it becomes Riddick, which yeah. kind of makes sense from the day to night shift, right? But uh, I don't know. It it feels like the movie's doing Fry a little bit dirty. And I like oh, yeah. Ronna Mitchell so much in this role. I, to be honest, I like Ronna Mitchell just in every role. I, I was, I was going to say, un- unfortunately, this is only um, second on the list of times that she's been done dirty. And the oh, first God. one would, yeah. the first, the first one would be being replaced by with a uh, Piper Parabo in mm. the in the third um, Gerard Butler blah 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 oh, has God. fallen film Atlantis blah yeah but but still it's just like how like I can understand if you try to get somebody who kind of looks like her and you're like nope she was short hair and blonde in the last movie and now she's the girl from Coyote Ugly which yes I know she's done other things but still if you're talking about the audience that that is seeing a Gerard Butler film, that's what their brain's going to go to. Well, and it, uh, I mean, we could have a much larger conversation about how Hollywood objectifies women and how it doesn't, it doesn't seem to think that we're going to notice if you replace one blonde woman with another blonde woman. Like it, yeah, yeah. it sometimes yeah. boggles my mind that the, there are just a lot uh, of men making decisions in Hollywood sometimes. Her, her being torn into the darkness by a winged alien creature isn't the worst thing to happen to her. So, which this is true. Us, which brings us, you know, wonderful, wonderful segue to, to the final question that we ask everybody is having rewatched this film recently, mm-hmm. is it still worthy of, of that reverence and praise that everybody gives to it or, you know, people like us give to it? Or are we the point where the luster and the sheen is slowly, you know, starting to wear off? Uh, I think this is one of those films where because it's the 20th anniversary, people are going to revisit it and they're going to remember why they liked it so much. Or they're going to say, oh, fuck, I slept on that 20 years ago and I really should have been paying attention. I, I hope that people if they do re-experience it, that they don't go in with the kind of dirty taste of the Chronicles of Riddick in their mouth. Cause that movie soured a lot of people on this mm. film retroactively, which is a shame because as we've said, this film is really good and Riddick is really good. And it's really like when you give the director an extra $90 million and tell him <laughs> to make a tent pole, that's where things fall apart. Yeah, and then the only time that anybody references the movie is when it's literally the poster on the bedroom door of Jamie Dornan in oh, the God. second Fifty Shades <laughs> of Grey film. Oh no, oh no! Because that's the oddest thing. It's it, it it's he goes back to his like uh, his childhood bedroom, and that was the poster they had on the door. And out of all the posters they could have possibly chosen, wow, that was the one. And I mean, it was. It was also universal, so they were like, let's, right. let's choose a random poster from when he would have been age-appropriate. Yeah, what's in the back catalog that we can use? And that and that's the only one that they were like, well, no one's going to remember this film, so here we Bastards. go. Bastards. Bastards. Now, I wanted to try something new for the new year, so you're the test subject here for something that I'm going to call related recommendations. And that's basically I'm going to give you a choice here. And that's you can either list like between one to three movies that you think would be good for people who enjoyed Pitch Black, like similar themed films. Or you can try to list one to two movies that you would recommend from that that are also hitting, um, you know, the 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 anniversary. So, you know, it could be a movie that's a 10 that's 10 years old or 30 years old that, that you think would pair up well with Pitch Black. Hmm. 
Can I cheat just a tiny little bit on the second one? Yeah, well, I mean, it's an either or, so you can do whichever one's easier for you. Okay. And you can cheat for whichever one because you're the test subject. You're, <laughs> you're the one who's helping me see how this goes. And if it sucks, then we take it away after this and we act like it never happened. Oh, God, the pressure. The pressure is on. Um, okay, so part of me is tempted to say do like a marathon evening of late 90s science fiction horror theme and start with camp or maybe end with camp whichever one suits your purposes best so you've got starship troopers mm-hmm. and then you've got event horizon and then you've okay. got pitch black so i think depending on if you want to end the night on a serious note or a more scary note you would probably end it with event horizon and put pitch black in the middle and start with starship troopers or do the reverse and end with the the glorious satire of capitalism and space adventure that is Starship Troopers. I, I guarantee you there's somebody who works as a programmer at one of the Alamo draft house who's going to stumble upon this and hear that part and go, oh, I'm I'm scheduling that as a triple feature. Because <laughs> those those really do work well together. You If you stack it correctly and you put the right pre-show in between it, that I think that would play like gangbusters. All right. What do you think? Do you, do you have a an immediate recommendation that would go to this? I mean, my other thought was, to be honest, to stick with underwater aquatic horror themed and do something like Leviathan from 89, which I just absolutely love. And it's got a similar kind of scrappy vibe to it. Yeah, I, I that was brought up recently when I was talking about other movies, because I think it's an underwater movie that, that doesn't get a lot of. Uh, attention i mean it's coming out at the time when you have the abyss you have deep star six and then you Mm -hmm. have leviathan and leviathan is very much the 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 goopy fun b movie film that i don't think gets enough credit just because the effects work is great it's completely insane you've got peter weller that cast is so stacked yeah it's just so great hector elizondo with the the mouth coming on his hand it's Mm -hmm. it's it's good um but no i mean i couldn't I was trying to think of something that would be good. And the only thing that I could think is literally telling people, Hey, yes, you know that there's a second movie, but skip it. You can go straight into Riddick. Oh, absolutely. After, after this movie. And it, and it, it's fine. It works as a great double feature, especially yeah. because of, so you have this one that comes out in 2000. Then you have Chronicles of Riddick. That's in 2004. And then mm-hmm. it's not until 2013 that they have Riddick and Riddick is a film where you can tell that the director and Vin Diesel, they have the money, they have a movie that they really want to put out. And because of that point in their careers, and especially where Vin Diesel as a, is at that time that the studio says, we're not going to stop doing whatever you want. So they both pair back the film mm-hmm. from Chronicles of Riddick, but they allow it to hit harder. So the, with the second one being PG 13 and losing kind of, you know, some oh, edge and wanting to get back to like the kills and stuff like that. There are some kills that I still remember to this day when it comes to, to with Riddick, like the pole that just absolutely obliterates half of that guy's face. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, there's some good stuff in that movie. Exactly. So, so I, I, I would just tell them just continue it. Yeah. Jump over the second one and just go to the third because you'll, you'll see, 
this character being on his own and not necessarily having, you know, some of that startup baggage that you have in this one and just have a really good time. Yeah. I mean, this one has to struggle a little bit because you're introducing the character, you're getting people accustomed to the world. Riddick just gets to hit the ground running. It, In fact, its biggest obstacle is just being like, hey, forget about the Chronicles of Riddick. Like, <laughs> we're, we're still kind of referencing a little bit of it, but really we you can tell it's just such a labor of love. And it really is because like Vin Diesel almost lost his home trying to put up the money for it. Uh, Carl Urban's still here because are you really going to tell Carl Urban not to be in your movie? Well, and I, I mean, let's keep that Aussie New Z or sorry, New Zealand uh, connection alive, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. You, you got to keep the peace. You got to keep the peace. Yeah. Now I want to thank you very much for coming on, Joe. It, it meant a lot having you on and, for for lots of the movies that we're doing and the whole reason why I enjoy, enjoy, enjoy doing this is when people hear films that are getting the anniversaries, they think of just like the biggest one. So like when E.T. was hitting it recently, people were thinking about E.T. and that there's these other films that are on there and you get into, I think, the better discussions when you're talking about something like Pitch Black or just a couple months ago when I was talking about Survival of the Dead or the year before when I talked about scarecrows with Rob Hunter is getting those <laughs> films that, that you're not really expecting to be discussed at length in this way that I think gets people to go and check them out and give them a chance that they maybe didn't get on either the first, second or third time. Absolutely. Yeah. So where can the good people and only the good people find you out on social media? <laughs> All right. So if you want to keep track with me, uh, my personal Twitter account is at B stole my remote and that's the letter B. And if you want to keep track of the horror queers, we also just added our own Twitter handle and that's just at horror queers. Perfect. You can find me on Twitter at Yo Adrian Taurus. And then, of course, for the show, we keep it very simple at Horrorversary. Not only was it a great and simple name, but it was a thing that wasn't taken anywhere else. So that's why I grabbed <laughs> it. It's spelled exactly like it sounds. You don't have to worry about anything whatsoever. And we're going to have lots of great episodes coming out. We've got lots of people who are reaching out who are both filmmakers, uh, people who are other podcasters, people who are film critics who are reaching out, really wanting to cover movies. I think because we're at, at the start of new decades for all of these that people want to talk about that, that turn in the tide. So until next time, be nice to each other.